In partnership with 2SER 107.3, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is a weekly program about the media featuring some of Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Hello around the country on the Community Radio Network and here on 2SER in Sydney. This is The Fourth Estate, the panel show on all things media and journalism. I'm Michael Koziol. Joining us on the panel this week, ABC senior reporter Peter Lloyd, BuzzFeed Australia editor Simon Crera, and SBS reporter and presenter Jeanette Francis. Hello to you all. Hello. Thanks for being here. Hello. <laughs> Remember, during the show, you can tweet at us at Fourth Estate AU. Ask what questions you want to be answered by the journos. There's no guarantee we'll ask them, but you can feel like you're participating in the process nonetheless. Um, how many media flags does it take to say nothing at all? Uh, we'll look at the Immigration Department's staggering PR team a little bit later on. But first, to the world of radio. Uh, last week, the troubled deal between Fairfax Radio and John Singleton's Macquarie Radio collapsed, prompting Singo to dump his stake in Fairfax at the end of the week. Uh, as a shareholder, he had been acting in unison with Gina Reinhardt, now out of the game. Um, reports were that the deal faltered because 2GB personalities Alan Jones and Ray Hadley uh, were reluctant about it, very reluctant indeed. Um, Peter Lloyd, I mean, this has been an on-again, off-again for a while, it's like an old romance. I, I mean, why were they interested in the first place, Fairfax and Macquarie? Um, look, I guess it's um, it's a simple um, equation in Australia of market share. It's a small country. It's a small business. And um, they don't have a lot of um, commitment uh, at a commercial level to the issues about diversity in this country generally because there's not much money to, to be made and um, there's only such a, a sized market. And the people who are making it um, will probably jump into bed with anyone to continue to make it. The, the enemies and the frenemies in radio that go around and come around is quite bizarre. Nothing is really impossible because um, there are uh, falling outs, makings up, breakings up. Uh, it's a bizarre industry. Um, but basically, it's about money. Fair enough. Uh, Simon Crera, I mean, you used to write for the Fairfax Papers back in the day. Uh, could Hadley and Jones really not cope? working for a joint venture that was controlled by Fairfax? I think certainly there's some ideological oppositions and um, uh, they're, they're very much at polar opposites. I think that that really wasn't um, part of the equation in this case, though. I think it's really, um, as Singo made very clear, that the fact that he feels that the board and, and, and he just don't see eye to eye and that he described them as incompetence. He thinks that the whole kind of management team at Fairfax don't know what they're doing. Um, and uh, the, they, you know, they might have an argument there. He certainly would have an argument, I think. And and uh, I mean, I think the thing is with, with Singo, um, he had a very tiny sh- uh, shareholding in the in uh, Fairfax. It was like he, he you, know, you described him as a uh, in cahoots with Gina Reinhart, but I think he only had less than a percentage. So he was very kind much of, smaller. Yeah, yes. much smaller. So he was um, very much just kind of making a lot of noise without having much impact in the future direction of Fairfax. So it seems like he's kind of almost throwing his toys out of the pram a little bit. Mm. Uh, Peter, I mean, where does this leave both sides? I mean, struggling, I suppose. Yeah, and they will for some time. And with with Singer, you don't really ever die wondering what he thinks about things. He comes out hard, and um, he's 
the, the romance between any of these players really comes down to the issues, not just of the market share and the, and the money, but the um, the egos and the, and the egomaniac-sized uh, egos on air in these places have inordinate power over the station because they're the, they're the cash revenue uh, drivers, especially Breakfast and Drive. And uh, what they want is what they get generally. So you're talking about not just business, but sort of a cultural issue as well in Australia. It's a small pond, and uh, there are people who have these uh, towering towering relationships which are connected to, directly to their size of their um, audience share and so they have what an influence mm. Simon I mean I don't know if you're a big listener to either 2GB or 2UE the big flagship uh, AM stations for both those companies in Sydney but um, you know I mean do you think the future is bright for either of them or where are they left well, I think there's this? a definite future for talk radio and I think that while, while it exists and while huge audiences are driven to uh, um, drive around listening to these people every morning then I think there's definitely a real um, appetite. I'm. I'm not personally. I'm uh, much of a listener to that type of commercial radio now. Fair enough. Well, look. Let's stay in radio because the broadcast regulator, the Australian Communications and Media Authority (ACMA), as it's otherwise known, has handed down another decision. You might not have heard about this one. For once, it isn't about. Kyle and Jackie O, uh, but rather it's ruled against a humble community radio station in Albury, Wodonga, after it played a song called I'm a Wanker. I had said we're not going to be able to play a clip of the song, unfortunately, but and we should note that ACMA's ruling was actually in relation to how the station handled the complaints about that song, not about playing the song itself. I think a letter to the complainant got missent or misaddressed or something like that. But that aside, it's a good opportunity for us to discuss how ACMA operates because... It's always under attack from both sides. Some people think it's too tough or shouldn't exist. Some people say it's a toothless tiger. Uh, Jeanette Francis, let's start with you. Is this a fair cop in this example or a bit of nanny statism? Um, I think this example is uh, is kind of a little bit of a grey line but because, as you said, the ruling was handed down not so much because they played the song with the word wanker in it but rather because of how the complaint was handled. Um, you know, it's, it's always kind of... When rulings come down on community radio, for example, I think it's a lot harder to to kind of take. And sometimes people think, oh, should they have come down that hard on such a small station? And I think at the end of the day, small or big, we're all subject to the same rules effectively. And I think that if this had happened in any other station, um, you know, an ABC station, particularly if it was handled badly, I think the same thing would have would have happened. And so we sort of just have to grin and bear it, really. Mm. I mean, broadly speaking, what do you make of those rules and regulations? Do you think where things stand under ACMA at the moment is kind of in a fair place or is it something that we should be looking at more broadly? Well, I, I'd always say that we should be looking at the way um, ACMA regulates the media landscape because it's, all, it's forever changing. Changing, isn't it? And we always kind of need to be keeping up with the the you know new media as it's called, or um, you know, and, and so on. So, yeah, I think that there's a reasonable discussion there to be had about just how much ACMA can actually enforce, um, you know, the decisions that it hands down. Mm. And um, you're very much in that new media world as well as being kind of, I guess, in a tr- more traditional radio and TV space. I mean, do you think there are failings at the moment that ACMA is? Uh, you know that really specifically needs to look at. Uh, I think that there are there are, there are failings on everybody's part when it comes to sort of new media, really, because it's just this kind of ground that nobody really knows where to tread, and inevitably there's going to be thin ice somewhere, and somebody's going to fall through the cracks. You know, so um, I think it's kind of a, a constantly evolving thing. Um, and you know, I think I think ACMA tries to stay on top of it as much as possible. But again, you kind of need to look at you know, the, the, the difference between the rulings that it hands down and what it can actually enforce and when and how. 
Um, and this was sort of pretty old media, wasn't it? It wasn't. Um, it was on radio and it was a song. It wasn't um, anything particularly specifically linked to the web. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I guess, I mean, someone I could ask you, you're a print and online guy, so you don't really have to worry about ACMA, but I mean, do you have thoughts on this situation and, and how it's regulated? Yes, uh, I, mean, I think we certainly do need to worry about it because, um, you know, we're operating and, uh, like, everyone has to make sure that things stand up properly. And I think, um, you know, uh, there's, there's regulations in place to make sure that, um, you know, I think the, the complainant in this issue was um, a mother who was listening with her 14-year-old boy. Um, so, you know, we have to be very much aware of who our audience is and, and what we're doing with them and making sure that we're not upsetting them. Oh, but I, th- I really I think I'm a bit of – I can't stand regulation at the best of times. And I just – I think society always moves faster than, than the rules that are made for it. And I think this is an example of, you know, we're at the ages of probably what society would could care less about. And I think the fact that someone complains about something doesn't mean that it's a violation of some social contract that exists in, the, in a non-official sense between us and audiences. And I think that this is a sort of a silly one because it is silly. And I don't think that, um, well, I, I remember I remember Regurgitator having a certain song about um, I, you know, did certain things to get where I am. Um, I'm, you know, paraphrasing and that was played on triple j many years ago when pauline hansen was around um someone's just turned towards a turntable you're not going to play it are you <laughs> no look i, I doubt it uh, but, i mean you, you make a good point um but are you saying that if the complaint itself isn't really that serious in nature it doesn't matter how the complaint is handled um this is one of those process and outcome questions that, that, that administrators um, in my organization may or may, may not um win their, lo- their next job over process is where you get the ABC and that's where you know these issues when we have a dispute with someone or the process complaint how you handle that uh, complaint becomes what it becomes all about instead of the complaint itself because it's a judgment on the capacity and competence of the people in jobs are they able to do their jobs are they following the rules of the of the game and this stuff gets all very woolly and very front-end about the issue and after a while people have forgotten what it was about just we have a a huge file about instead these stories and um what does it matter in the end i don't know not a lot i think uh i I, i'm more for reform in terms of what we can do and what we can say and opening up the space because i think we should be at the front of these discussions with with the communities that we're in not behind them and i imagine granny might have been upset a lot of other people are upset we're even having this discussion Mm. and peter sorry go ahead yeah i was was just gonna say i imagine you know the 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 kid in question would have probably heard the word wanker or seen many (laughs) many 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 worse things you know um, online or or whatever it is so yeah i I guess i guess you do have to take into account the gravitas of the um of the complaint itself fair enough and very quickly before we move on peter i mean you did mention at the start there that uh, your uh position naturally is to oppose this sort of regulation. I mean, do we think well, do we need not, to... Well, no, I, mean, I wouldn't say that's a default position. Okay, well, I mean you did suggest that. I mean, do we need to have a debate about ACMA's roles and responsibilities? Always, yeah, always. always. Because, um, you know, the question about these organisations is the consistency and the fairness factor, which is one of the sniff tests of their, um, their use to us. You can, okay, have a crack at community radio or whomever else, but you've got to be consistent. You've got to go after Hadley as well. You're listening to For the State on 2SCR and across the country on the Community Radio Network. I'm Michael Coziol. The journos are here, Jeanette Francis, Peter Lloyd and Simon Carrera. To Canberra now, uh, it was revealed at the weekend that the Immigration Department, headed at the Cabinet level by Minister Scott Morrison, has 66 people in its media team. They're supported by another 33 media flacks working for customs. 
For comparison, in 2011, the Immigration Department employed just 11. These are not all at the behest of Scott Morrison. There were 72 in August last year while Labor was still in power. So, Peter Lloyd, does Operation Sovereign Borders require 100 media personnel to manage? <laughs> well, <laughs> far be it from me to suggest that it does. I think that it's broadly uh, it tells you a lot about government and governance and information flow in, in our society. And it's getting worse. It's not just that department. Defence, I think, at the last um, time I had a look at it, was in the 90s, perhaps even more than that. And you have to say, what is the, um, what's the value proposition of having these people? And what is the, the strategic or the, the mechanism that they apply to these questions that we ask? And what I found over the years is it's, it's getting, the wall is getting higher and it's getting thicker. <laughs> the people aren't thick necessarily, but it's getting deeper. Well, you don't know that. <laughs> well, the responses sometimes do make you wonder. Yes, um, well, they the... seem to be trained to be uh, quite thick or impervious almost to, you know, well, they're, a they're, logical interpretation they're, of a question. Yes, the, the release of information is, is um, uh, understood in different ways. What I want and what they're going to give me are two different things. And it's uh, you have to understand there's a bit of a dance that goes on. And there's always disappointment, and sometimes you go home alone. Mm. Simon, I mean, is it the way of the world of government and political PR these days that this is with? I mean, we know that there are more PR people in Australia than journalists. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. Year. Yeah, yes. this, this, that's certainly true. But I think, I mean, this is the biggest <laughs> um, uh, story in Australia in lots of ways, isn't it? The biggest foreign news story, the biggest home affairs issue, and so you can understand why they've thrown a whole load of people at it. And obviously, as you make clear, that was. Um, put together under the Labour government rather than the existing coalition. So, um, you know, I think there's a huge amount of management everyone wants to know. I think it's very interesting that um, uh, the Scott Morrison approach of the weekly briefings, which has now been rolled back to uh, no briefings at all, you kind of wonder um, what a lot of these people are actually doing. Well, it's a shocking lack of transparency. Mm. I mean, they, these are people who, at the end of the year, if you want to know how much have you spent in uh, immigration, for example, on media training, that is, uh, educating your ministers and spokes spokespeople on the efficient way to respond to um, questions and to best present the information you want to go forward and not necessarily answer the questions that we are asking. And it is shed loads of money. But transparency on that has never been big under either government. It's a major issue that you really only get it out of Senate estimates. You may get um, uh, some big numbers every now and then, but line items which actually show you how much dough gets spent by these characters and for the MPs is another question altogether of transparency. We're just not there yet. Mm. I, I think mean, Jeanette, what we need to yeah. look at as well um, is, you know, one of the key differences between 2011 and, say, today is the the strengthening, I think, of the 24-hour news cycle as well. And that's not to say that that's the only reason why they have this huge media contingent, but we're operating now where a question comes up and you need an answer straight away. And otherwise there's someone on Twitter writing something that's, you know, fairly profound, attacking your government or whatever it is. And so you have this much, a much higher intensity, I guess, of workload that's, that's spread over the day rather than just catering to the 6 and 7 p.m. bulletins. Um, and I think that that's something that's definitely played a role in why the media machines in Canberra, not just in the Department of Immigration, but everywhere, have sort of fattened up. I mean, Jeanette, and that's a, you know, a valid uh, or legitimate purpose for having more people in port, I suppose. Uh, I guess the argument that Bianca Hall made in the Sun-Herald on the weekend 
was, you know, th- this doesn't really sit too well within the context of a media relations strategy in the immigration department in particular that seems to be one of containment and, and some would say secrecy. Well, we've we've known that for a long time, though. You know, I mean, we've known for a very, very... Journos have, at the very least, known that every time you call the Department of Immigration, you're going to get a very kind of uh, bland or greyish type answer, you know. Um, and and this, this issue has been around for several years, and we've known for several years that there has been a, a great level of secrecy in reporting it, particularly now with the, the idea to no longer report the boats that are arriving uh, in Australian waters. Um, and so, yeah, it is a little bit disconcerting, I think, for journos as well as for the view. I mean, I remember being, when I was in Nauru, uh, we had a department um, uh, personnel kind of come with us and sort of just follow us around and, you know, and, and we knew that that was going to happen. And every time you asked a, a question, you would get these really sort of formulaic answers of, oh, we're working on it and this hasn't been drafted yet and we're looking into writing this thing up, so we're going to have to wait until that happens. And you just sort of know that it's a really... You, you don't you don't really have that kind of confidence that yeah they're here to answer your questions or as Peter said you know what you want and what they are going to give you are sometimes two very different I, things. I, I, have to, I feel there's a distinct lack of cultural sophistication in in these roles for some of these people. In that I know that uh, certainly in other countries in the UK when I've worked there, there's I found a um, uh, almost a personality culture in some of these information officers' jobs where they have lost the plot, some of them, and they've become true believers uh, of, the, of the thing that they're working on and for. And a simple almost question... Almost Stockholm Syndrome what, what, sort of thing. Is the sky blue today or is it um, hazel? Uh, sir, well, that, that information is not relevant. That's um, the beauty of PR, you know, you stop just it's, believing. It's all yeah. willing and silly. You get to a point of silliness because, it, because they can and because they've lost, I think, um, or never had, a sense of the, the, higher, the higher moral purpose of information givers and, and the government, and we're in a democracy, etc. Some of them, I think, have become just partisan hacks and they've become um, sufficiently uh, hateful of the media because we're here that because they can deny information, they simply do. Okay. Well, we'll have to march on. We've got a lot to get through in today's program. Uh, turning to you, Simon, uh, BuzzFeed Australia has launched, as I'm sure most of us know, and is hitting the ground running, counting down the 48 best grilled cheeses of all time and giving us endless opportunities for a bit of distraction at the office, but doing a lot more than that, I'm sure. Uh, so Simon is the editor of BuzzFeed Australia. We're lucky to have him on the panel. Uh, what is it trying to achieve and how's the reception been? Well, initially what we're attempting to do is basically um, in in lots of ways do what our American site did a few years ago and our British site did a year ago, which is take BuzzFeed to a new audience. We we set up in Australia because we have a a good and um, loyal and quite large audience already. But what we're keen to do is to to grow that and to to take BuzzFeed to people who haven't heard of us before. And that means we're looking at um, applying um, what we do to Australians in all parts of the country and with all kind of demographical backgrounds. Mm. I mean, a lot of the content... Uh, at the launch has been quite sort of infused with patriotism, you know, 50 reasons why Australia is the best place on earth. Uh, will that diversify down the track? Is that just kind of, you know, the hook that you use to go in? Absolutely. I mean, um, certainly, like I said, um, that what we've done uh, previously in looking in other markets is this idea of um, being quite catch-all to begin with and then get down to, you know, we had um, reasons why Wollongong is the best city in Australia. Um, and so we will get down to regional, local levels, definitely, absolutely. Yeah, good luck with that one. Um, <laughs> There's a time with that. <laughs> What's that? Does it time with ads and, and campaigns for people who are selling houses there? No, it certainly doesn't. We don't have any real estate. <laughs> um, I mean, I know you've worked uh, in London uh, for quite a bit of your career, or, or for at least for British newspapers, And but mm. uh, maybe everyone could come in on this as well. It seems to be, the launch of BuzzFeed seems to be very much part of a growing international interest in the Australian 
Australian media landscape, you know, alongside The Guardian, The Daily Mail. Why is that? I think it's an untapped market almost, really, for these guys. I think um, Fairfax has had, uh, and the Australian as well, they've uh, the Murdoch Press has had some considerable um, woe in trying to get newspapers, their newspapers online in, in a format that people can relate to anyway, or their traditional readership. And I think that there's, there's almost a black hole where these big uh, sort of press organisations overseas see this opportunity to start completely afresh, you know, and not really have the Australian audience say necessarily compare the print with the online version that comes in. So I think they just... They've seen it as a, as an opportunity, um, and I think that they're, they're probably taking that up. And BuzzFeed's quite, an, you know, it's an international sort of site, you know. So coming into Australia and getting that information and kind of broadcasting it all over the world with the strength of the of the original site, I think it's um it's only a clever thing to I do. I think it's very exciting for um, Australian news consumers, really, because I, I first came here ten years ago, and there was, like you said, just the Fairfax and Murdoch Press, and it was um, it was very narrow. And I think the fact that now we have, you know, the Guardian have been here for a year, they've done really well, they've um, brought a new um, way of looking at things from the left and the mail are going to come and they're going to do the sidebar of shame from Bondi and I think you know they'll be, they'll be offering something different and I think you know that can only make it exciting and interesting if you're um, you know if you're a reader and I, like our audience is very much our traditional audience um, our existing audience is very much in the kind of like youth teenagers and 20 somethings but we're going to hopefully grow that into into all sorts of other play areas yeah you're listening to Fourth Estate, the program on media and journalism. I'm Michael Koziol. Simon Crera, Jeanette Francis and Peter Lloyd are with us today. There was very low turnout last week for a rally in support of freeing Australian journalist Peter Grest, who was working for Al Jazeera in Egypt. Uh, he and others have been in custody since late December. Uh, the protest was during business hours, granted. But Jeanette Francis, I mean, does this say something about the importance or the gravity that we attach to these matters? I mean, how do you explain, I guess, what we might say is the lack of public resonance about this. Um, I think one of the statistics that shocked me the most, and I'm a journalist, is the number of journalists around the world who are actually killed each year trying to cover uh, fairly important issues in various countries. And so I think to myself that if if I don't know this myself, and I hear it at you know the the, the media kind of um, a media function say. Then how how is it that the general public is supposed to know the you know the exact kind of um, impact um, or or exactly what it is that journalists go through overseas? I think um, I think it is a pretty important issue, and, and to be honest, I'm not surprised that that the turnout wasn't that big. Um, I, I just think. Um, it might need to kind of get out there a little bit more. And I do wonder if he was just an Australian uh, who wasn't necessarily a journalist, would the turnout have been bigger or would it have been smaller necessarily? Do you think it would be bigger if he worked for the ABC rather than Al Jazeera? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not – I can't say yes. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily – no, I, I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's. I think in, in concentric circles, it is that much more. It's further away from them, from them, them feeling it and getting it in a way that they would. Perhaps if that was the case, it's a higher profile person. Mm. Or think, if he was in Indonesia, for example, somewhere closer. Yeah, that's to right. In but you know, our jazz doesn't have the huge audience in Australia, and it's a bit of a um, complicated. Um, Conversation Al Jazeera because there's two types: there's the, the Arabic and the, and the non-Arabic. Um, but this is there's a very simple story here, and that is that you know um, thug regimes like the ones running Egypt at the moment, because that's all they are. It's, let's not call them anything else. Um, it's the army's taken over, and the country's headed um, in a very bad direction. Australians don't generally um, get up in arms about those stories because it's been never thus, and we're at the other end of the planet, far, far away. Yeah, we're very and, detached from it. 
completely detached, and, and we don't, um, as a rule, get very excited about things. It could have been a, a rally about free pizza. It still wouldn't have brought that many people to it. But do you think, though, Peter, that if it was somebody from the ABC, so a familiar face and a familiar voice and a familiar name, do you think that it, things would be different? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I think I think one of the reasons why it isn't different is that you don't hear a lot uh, for for reasons I'm not quite clear about. You don't you don't get a lot of noise from mum and dad, um, nor from Julie Bishop and, and the prime minister, and not a lot's being said by them, which means one of two things: they've got nothing to say, um, or they are doing the process game behind the scenes with, with diplomacy and, and all the best endeavours. And I certainly hope they are. And if they're not. I would really want to know why. I would hate to think that um, Peter Grist has been given the, oh, he's, get, he's getting the, cons, the consular visits treatment and that's about all. There's a very, very serious issue behind this. If you were an American and you're in the situation or a, or a bit or a European, you're, you'd already be out of jail. The uh, countries involved have already used their leverage for the Egyptians to get their journos who've been locked up out. Ours are still there, so why are we not exerting that leverage? Why, yeah, why, why, why do you think that we're not? That's, that's an interesting question. Well, because we don't know, because there's 100 PR people between us and the Prime Minister. <laughs> I couldn't possibly tell you. Um, Simon, it's not a, you know, the region that we're in to our north, particularly in Southeast Asia, is not a not known for its press freedom. In fact, uh, countries now ranked lower than Burma are um, Singapore, Malaysia, the Philippines. Uh, this is a problem. How do, how do we deal with it? Uh, well, I mean, you know, obviously... Uh, an institution like the uh, ABS Australia, which is attempting to uh, broadcast, which broadcasts overseas in these regions, I think is, is good and powerful and valuable. Um, I think if the funding for that is cut back, then that's obviously like a, a big worry. But um, I think, you know, the internet plays a big part in that people in these countries can be very attached to what's going on in the world and, and um, can, you know, th- through social media and stuff can can be um, telling people around the world what's actually happening there. But yeah, there's, there's lots of work to do with free press, definitely. Yeah, and look, but the thing about the internet and the media is that it's not that good in countries like Burma, for example, where you know they blocked it or it was owned by the regime so they could um, control the message. And people aren't as uh, media literate in vast part, in fact, most of the world, they're not like us. They don't have smartphones, etc. And so th- some of them still very much lead the village life, and it's nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, Nothing is as, is as powerful in most of those countries as the village um, communication system. You know, what people say word in the street. We're going to keep racing through. Uh, very finally, before we go on the program, the Saturday paper launched on the weekend with a resounding and entertaining endorsement from Malcolm Turnbull on Friday night when he took a few jabs at, among others, uh, Rupert Murdoch and The Australian. Let's have a quick listen. You've not only started these new publishing ventures, you have actually made them uh, profitable, you know, cover their costs, etc. You're not, you're, you're not some, uh, you know, demented plutocrat pouring more and more money into a loss-making venture that's just going to peddle your opinions. Uh, in, in less than 30 seconds, I mean, Jeanette, did you read the Saturday paper? What in less than 30 seconds, mm. no. No, that's good. No, no. Yeah, I read it, but only because I found a copy on Sunday in, in a cafe in um, Wallara. It was very difficult to get. I tried five news agents looking for it. I, I, I will, I, though. I can find it today I will, when though. I'm looking. Yeah. And I, I've actually got a friend who said that he ordered it. Uh, he ordered it to, to, to get delivered, and it didn't arrive. Hmm. And, and several that's people have had, have had that problem as well. Pesky neighbours. <laughs> um, I mean, Troy Bramston, maybe this is one for you, Simon, saying that you read it. it is, Troy Bramston said in The Australian Today that it's basically a weekly polemical magazine, not a newspaper. I mean, he's right, isn't he? He's right, and it seemed um, like it was very dull and it wasn't current. It's printed on Friday morning, I think. It's really not part of the discussion, so... Oh, well, there goes our chances of getting anyone <laughs> well, well, Saturday a... paper back. So I'd, I'd like to see it strengthened, though, all things considered. 
and in also in less than 30 seconds, uh, Peter, the oh, Oz, the Australian newspaper has pledged to start running a regular series of ABC corrections. Uh, it oh, says that the, I mean, Are really? you worried? Look, there's this culture war expression we hear of in, 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 the, um, in the game, but really, I mean, do we have to invent a culture war? Um, can't we all just get along? It seems like satire. I read it today and it actually yeah. seems as if it's the ABC voice talking and it's not presented as satire. It's presented as we've just got this from the ABC and this is us apologising on their behalf. So it's very weird to look at. Well, we shall wait and see what they come up with. Um, we're, at the, we're out of time, unfortunately, but a very big thank you to Peter Lloyd, Simon Carrera and Jeanette Francis for coming on the show. Remember, you can download this episode on our website, fourthestate.org.au and also our entire archive. I'm Michael Koziol. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is produced by 2SER 107.3 and can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER's 107.3, 2SER's digital, 2SER.com and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley's news and events.